Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Sophie will ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of The Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks for being with us tonight for The Bible Live. Uh, my cohort, my partner, my friend uh, Jacob is not with us. He's uh, attending... Um, I think some Hanukkah celebrations and so on with his family over in Arizona. Arizona. Deborah, yeah. I believe so. so John and I are here alone in the station, but we're not alone. We're, we've got you along with us, and we're hoping you might give us a call uh, during the next 90 minutes that you might join with me. And as we look and consider all things biblical, we're making our way each and every year, uh, discussing and commenting and studying our way through the entire Bible and uh, our reading schedule that uh, often is on the air every year that we can afford to do it. We put it on the air so that you can hear the scriptures Monday through Friday every week. Now, but if we're not able to, we constant, we stay on our same reading schedule at least. And this is the week, this past week, that we moved from the Hebrew scriptures, moving from Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Now we move to the first book of the New Testament, just in time to observe and celebrate the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be and demonstrated himself to be, we believe, by fulfilling uh, the prophecies. Not not in the sense that, okay, here's a list of uh, 300 prophecies, go out and fulfill them, because that would have been impossible. He couldn't, there are certain areas, certain many of these prophecies that he could not have read about and said, okay, I'm going to go fulfill that, like where he was going to be born. Uh, he, that was out of his hands, that he was going to be raised in Nazareth, that he would flee down into Egypt, all of those experiences. So many of the prophecies that we see, over 300 prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures uh, through from Genesis through Malachi, over 300 predictions and prophecies about this Messiah, this anointed one, this hero that was to come, that God was going to send to full, fulfill and carry out the redemptive plan that God had from from the very beginning, uh, we're told that Jesus Christ is the Lamb um, sacrifice, the Lamb uh, of God presented from before the foundation of the world. This didn't God wasn't up there just ad libbing and, and uh, kind of winging it. Uh, this was a plan that God had for the human race, uh, created for a relationship with God. As human beings, we have the unique qualities and characteristics as created beings that we could indeed enjoy a personal relationship with God himself, who is also personal. Uh, We understand from the scriptures, God has revealed himself clearly to be personal, to be interactive, to be relational. Uh, At at the very core of his being, the, the, the Godhead, There are three distinct persons that dwell in perfect harmony and oneness and that we are invited. God created the human race to draw out a people for himself who love God, desire God, acknowledge God, worship God, 
and desire that relationship with him and that we then will be are being drawn according to uh let's see John chapter 17 if you want to read that uh Jesus high priestly prayer we are being drawn into that relationship with with the father the son into the and the spirit into that oneness that oneness relationship and harmonious relationship with our god not that we become god but that we are brought, drawn into that relationship with our god so all of that though is centered from the very beginning all of that the the primary personality the main character of the bible these 66 books written over a period of 1500 years the 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 scarlet thread through the bible is that redemptive plan that god presents uh, that the means by which he is going to draw uh, fallen sinful humanity human beings and fallen and sinful with all of our weaknesses and our frailty that he will draw us into that relationship with a holy and righteous God by the work of a redeemer, one who would come and atone for the sins of mankind, allow us to come into that relationship with God, and then on the basis of that relationship, by the power of God's Spirit working in us and with us, we will be transformed and changed, and he will write his laws on our hearts. Now, there's a lot of stuff here, I'm telling you, there's a lot of theology here. This is this is not um, sort of fable land. This is not the world of mythologies and makeup, uh, as C.S. Lewis, Lewis said. The God of the Bible is not the, a, a God that we would create if we could, or that we could create if we would. Uh, the God of the Bible is not. <laughs> we would not have made up a God in this way. The made up gods are pretty clear to to look and, and understand uh, they're, they're just glorified human beings with all of our frailties and all of our weaknesses as well. The mythologies of, of Thor and, and Zeus and, and, uh, and so on. Uh, this is not a mythology. This is a, uh, if you read the scriptures, this is a very serious presentation of how God revealing himself to his creation and God working and moving in time and space. He spoke, he acted, he involved himself in the lives of people to carry out a work of revealing himself and a work of redemption and now a work of transformation as he deals with his people uh, through the ages now with God's people to help draw others into the into the family of God and also to transform and change our lives uh, to so that we reflect his very character, so that the laws of God uh, are written on our hearts. They become part of who we are as human beings. And that's that's an exciting thing that's going on. So I want to talk to you about this tonight. We're moving in from the book of Leviticus. There's still some things we can discuss there, if you'd like, from chapters 19 through 27. We read those chapters. And then uh, jumping over hundreds of years later, about 1,300 years later, to come to the time of the birth of this Messiah, this one human being that would be born, fully and totally human, but the, we are the, the eternal Son of God himself humbled himself and took on flesh. Now, we can take all of this and talk about it as deeply as you want. Obviously, these are these are profound topics uh, in, in terms of theology. We talk about Christology, our understanding of the Messiah, our understanding of, the, of, of 
who the Messiah was, the uh, the understanding of why the Messiah, why God became a man, and what was the purpose, and what was the what was the objective, what was the work, what was the challenge that the Messiah faced, why did the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, why did he humble himself and become a tiny, tiny little egg on the wall of Mary's womb? And and rise to go through the stage, all the stages of development of a human being, born into this world, a helpless, weak baby, crying uh, in the night, and 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 uh, de- fully dependent on mom and dad, just like any other human baby. And and why did that happen? What and what was the nature of it? You know, I remember seeing movies, uh, not movies, but paintings when I we lived in Spain for many many years, uh, and. I would go to go to Madrid and go to other places. We would see some of the great art artists uh, through the centuries, and their their pictures, uh, their paintings of uh, the Madonna of Mary, uh, the mother of Christ, uh, holding the baby in her arms or on her lap. And I remember sometimes I would see this little baby. You'd you'd see Mary holding the baby, and and if you kind of put your fingers together and just focus in on the face. Uh, he had a little baby's body, but then if you look on the face, you know that uh, you'd be like you're looking at a 50 year old man. You know that here's this little baby, but you know he's really you know he could put a cigar in his mouth and he'd look just fine because he has that maturity. That uh, is that what we think of Jesus? That he uh, the nature of the God indwelling, becoming a man. That he that he was really just a baby. He was playing like a baby. And acting like he was a baby and a toddler and a little five-year-old, six-year-old boy, and just acting that way, so that but he was really um, God. I mean, he's kind of the Superman version of our understanding of the of the um, of the incarnation. But no, 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 no. He he was he humbled himself and became a man in very every way. A, a crying little baby uh, needed his diapers changed. He had to be fed. He had, he totally dependent. He grew to a young toddler and a young boy running. And and uh, if any of you have children or grandchildren, you've watched this process. That was Jesus was a, a normal, common little Jewish boy. But there was something unique about him. Uh, maybe I should put that out as a question for you. Maybe you could talk to me about this tonight. When you think of Jesus of Nazareth, when you think of him, as a child or as a baby, as a child, we're told certain things. If you look in the Gospels, uh, what do you think of? How do you think of the Son of God? How do you think of the Messiah? Um, how, how, what do you think was the nature of his existence? What, how did he think? What did he understand? And was it totally and absolutely different from any of us? How how did Jesus know who he was? How did he discover uh, or come to believe that he was indeed that long-awaited, promised Messiah? Uh, talk to me a little bit about that tonight. I'd like to. We're moving into the Gospel of Matthew uh, in chapters 1 through 9. As we come now to the season of Christmas, we observe and celebrate and acknowledge the birth of this one, this one human being who has become the central focal point of the human race, of the one that brings and allows human beings from every nation, every tribe, every tongue to 
come into a confident, secure relationship with the Creator Himself. And so as we talk about this person, let's let's reflect at, at any level you'd like. Let's reflect on who he was, what he did, what he accomplished, how he accomplished uh, our, our redemption, how he carried out that role of the Messiah, and then what is its significance to us today. So if you'd like to give a call for the next um, 90 minutes, now I guess it's 75 minutes now that 15 have gone by, we will be taking your phone calls at, at 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. If you'd like to talk to me a little bit tonight, let's talk about the Christ. Let's talk about the Messiah. Let's talk about God, the redemptive plan that is presented to us in the Scriptures uh, and let's talk about it. Is this really true? Did this really happen? It's not. It, it it's not just cleverly devised fables. It it, it went on for you know fifteen hundred years. We see it predicted. It, it's this this particular um, redemptive plan of God based on a, a substitutionary atonement. One who would come, who would take our sin upon Himself. Uh, and atone for our sins so that we could be, by faith and trust in, in his work, who he was and what he accomplished, we could be uh, come into a confident, secure relationship God with God. We could be reconciled to God and become part of the family of God. I'd love to hear you talking tonight a little bit about this Christmas, what it means to you, and as you think about the Messiah. Not, And don't worry, I, I don't have any problem with the baby in the manger and uh, you know, Mary and old little town of Bethlehem and all of our uh, things. But at some point, we have to come to understand that uh, th- these things really happen. What does it mean that that uh, God became a man? The Word became flesh and dwelled among us, as we're told in the Gospel of John and, and all through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, our emphasis is to the people of Israel. Uh, and I'm thinking about the the nation state of Israel, the the sociological, political state of Israel, the people of that nation. As you know, uh, the people of Israel is it's not an ethnic group, it's not ethnicity. Uh, this is a this is just simply basically a people group that came out of a given Abraham, then Isaac and Jacob, and then we you know we know the ten tribes of Israel. Joseph then went down to Israel. We've been following uh, that history in the Hebrew Scriptures. <laughs> so this is essentially uh, uh, that people group, when we talk about Israel in that sense, that God is dealing with. He has an, an earthly, uh, earthbound covenant with them to walk with them, to preserve them, protect them, and guide them if they follow and obey and trust God in, in a, as a people group. Um and so that is one level of the covenant. On the other hand, Israel is much bigger theme than just a, a people group. It is the people of God universally, those across the world. Uh, and of course, many of that we see in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. It wasn't just uh, it wasn't just Jews and, and descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that made up Israel. There were many people from many different people groups. There were Moabites. There were um, we we celebrate some of them in the, in the very in the um, in the lineage of Jesus Himself. There are women, men, who are not themselves uh, Hebrew or Jewish, 
uh, in that physical sense, biological sense, but they have come to worship and follow after the true and living God. And if you go through the Old Testament, so very many of them we could point out. There, were, there was uh, Rahab. We look at Ruth, uh, one of the books of the, the Hebrew Scriptures, others, men as well, some of the followers, some of the mighty fighting men of David in the Old Testament were not themselves uh, Hebrew. But they did uh, convert in the sense of they became convinced that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was indeed the true and living God, uh, and they followed after him. And in that part, since they became part then of Israel, the, the people of God. And um, so have we, we're told in the New Testament, those of us who have uh, placed our faith and trust in Jesus, the Messiah, and, and therefore by faith become reconciled to God and become part of the people of God. We too now, as we Paul points it out in the New Testament, uh, Jesus speaks of it, uh, that, the, the, that the people of God... Um, Children of Abraham, in that sense, are not just, uh, it's not just a, a biological relationship, uh, an, an ethnic relationship. It's, an, it's a, we are the people of faith, the people who have come into our relationship with God by faith and trust in God in, in his redemptive plan through the Messiah. So uh, it, it's a big, big, big theme tonight. The Bible is not just a, a book of mythology, and we've got this, you know, like the, Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or some cleverly devised. God really did. We're saying that the true and living God, the God that is really there, this is what he has revealed, that this was the way, his plan of redemption, and this is what he has done, and that uh, Jesus, Jesus the Christ was indeed uh, the culmination of that long, long promise and awaited redemptive plan to be to be brought out and fleshed out everything we see in the old testament before jesus was born these are these are beautiful pictures and some of the predictions and the prophecies we have about the messiah were actually verbal telling he's going to be like this he's going to do this he's going to be born here he's going to this that and the other uh, the characteristics of god of the messiah who he was, how he would behave, what would be his character, what would be his characteristics, from whom, from what genealogy he would come, and so on. So a, a lot of the Hebrew scriptures are that, but but some of them are not verbal. Some of them are pictured. Uh, as Jacob, our, our uh, Jewish friend, the, part of the reason Jacob is along is to help lead us and guide us to understand from the Hebrew scriptures, we who are from other people groups and so on. We've been grafted into the people of God to Israel through our faith in the Messiah, and which flows, of course, out of the uh, Judaism and the in the in the faith uh, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, in the true and living God. So we we have been grafted in as part of that, but um, but that we are now part of Israel. We have been made part of the people of God. So sometimes when you read the word Israel in the Bible, whether it's New Testament or Old Testament, sometimes you think about the actual people group, the political group, the nation state of Israel, the citizens of that of that uh, nation state, that earth-bound uh, people group, and sometimes it refers to that. They, there is a real role that God had for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, for the people of Israel 
as he guided them and worked with them. It was a, an earthly covenant, not a salvation covenant that every every person of that, that lineage automatically goes to heaven, or, but but that it is a, a an earthly an earthly contract or covenant with a people group that if as a as a people they will follow him and love him and adore and and worship him and obey him they would experience God, in other words God was using them as a as a an instrument of revelation of himself in their world through all those centuries to the nations around them and he was working in them with them and through them to accomplish that and through that people group he brought the messiah um, through through that lineage, and of course we're we're given refining the lineage down to the household of David. He would be the king of the lineage of David, King David, and others that we see throughout the scriptures. So there is an involvement, there is an Israel, but there's a bigger picture of Israel that talks about all the people of God. That all those from every race, every tribe, every language. I'm Mescalero Apache from the reservation down in southern New Mexico. Uh, and yet I am grafted in. I've become, uh, because of my trust and faith in Jesus the Messiah, I've become part of the people of God. There are, there are Vietnamese, there are Canadians, there are Mexicans, there are Russians. I've met and, and ministered and met and helped introduce hundreds and thousands of young men and women from and all over uh, Russia, Ukraine, uh, Karaganda, uh, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, India—all, all of these places. There are men and women who, who seek after the true and living God, and when they hear the good news that God indeed is knowable and that He has made a way for us to be reconciled to Him, our sins atoned and and forgiven, and be brought into that relationship with God. Millions and millions of human beings today and all through the centuries past have come to faith to be a part of the people of God through their faith and trust in who Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth was, and that redemptive work that he carried out on our behalf through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. So we're going to talk all things uh, messianic, all things Christ-centered tonight. I'd love to hear from you, 210-340-9585, and I'd like to hear your thoughts and your experiences some of uh, they can be very personal, or some of them can be very uh, as you've as your mind you've tried to uh, through the the years as a follower of Christ you try to wrap your mind around the idea of who He is and what He really accomplished on our behalf. If you have a thought you'd like to share with us, you can give me a call during this next hour, and we'll talk about uh, the central main character of the Scriptures of the Bible. So you again, you can give us a call anytime you'd like. John is here to. Pick up and uh, take your call, then I'll bring you on the air, and we'll discuss uh, your thoughts and your understanding then of who Jesus was, what he accomplished, and maybe uh, maybe a little about uh, your family and what you're celebrating. You know, Christmas always means Christmas always means a, a little something to different to me every uh, every year. It seems like there's some emphasis. There, maybe there's something going on in the world, or there's something going on in our culture, in our society. Uh, we we observe these things. We participate. We're part of our world that we live in. And every year, then, Christ, Christmas means maybe just a tiny little dip, bit different as I relate uh, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, and God's redemptive plan, as I relate it to what's happening in our world today. And so maybe you have a thought about that as well. Uh, this year, what is Christmas? 
to you? Is there is there some unique, a special uh, meaning that Christmas has taken on uh, because of what the things we're going through as a nation uh, or the things that are happening in the world? I'd love to hear from you. Like I said, uh, 210-340-9585. Now, we did read some passages from Leviticus. Uh, as many of you know, the book of Leviticus that we mentioned in our all of our of our as we thought about and taught about the book of Leviticus uh, in the last few weeks, the central theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. Uh, that God is revealing Himself to be holy, set apart, unique, uh, no one, no other like Him, and that now we are set apart. We are to become holy, even as the Lord our God is holy. We are set apart for Him uh, and to for His. Pleasure for that relationship with Him, God has set us apart for Himself, and He is uh, working to uh, for us to reflect His character, and that we now become His instruments to witness to others, to to demonstrate to others what it is to know God, truly know Him, and love God, and and, and enjoy God, and how and tell others how they can too, they can also come into that confident, secure relationship with. The Creator. So the Leviticus has that theme of holiness. We'll go from there right into the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be talking about who Matthew was and what is the basic theme of the book of Matthew. Give us a call if you'd like, 210-340-9585. Don't go away. We will be right back. Comfort and joy, old tidings of comfort and joy. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. God, our Heavenly Father, this blessed angel came, and unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same, how that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name, oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Dr. Stan Shelton, with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway, has taken care of the Dollar family, that's Suzanne and me, plus our three children, for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to DrShelton.com or call 590-7878. Is the Bible Live with Soapy Dog? the Beach Boys saying Christmas hymns. Good to have you on board with us tonight. This is the Bible Live. This is the Soapster, Soapy Dollar, your host. Jacob is not with us this evening, uh, getting a, a nice, dessert, well-deserved rest, time with his family, 
And so we are here on the microphone with you, waiting for your call. If you'd like to give us a call and talk a little bit about what Christmas means to you this year. Is there a certain aspect of Christmas for you and your family that is really that that kind of has become the emphasis, something that maybe you've discovered about the the God of the Bible or about the redemptive plan or about the Messiah, about Jesus and his role, or something you've learned about that has really been a blessing and encouragement to you, go, give us a call. I'd like to hear from you, 210-340-9585. Well, I was just talking about the book of Leviticus, uh, kind of finishing our, our consideration of that book in the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and we see God working. Uh, Moses has delivered the Ten Commandments. And they have begun already to expand on those Ten Commandments to talk about what was, how did they work out in the culture, in the society. And, for example, uh, we're told that in Chapter 19 of Leviticus that when they're harvesting their crops, the people of Israel were told not to harvest around the edges or pick up the grain or other produce that, that was dropped on the ground. Uh, in other words, there would be... Uh, it is it, a little bit of waste, but always in the process of har- harvesting the crops, some of the seed uh, grain would fall on the ground, or, and so on. And uh, the, why would that be true? Why was why were the people of Israel told not to harvest around the edges of their crop, or pick up the grain or other produce that was dropped on the ground? Why would that happen? We were told that in chapter nineteen of Leviticus that uh, this was for the poor or for the stranger, the traveler through the land, so that they would be able to find sustenance and and food. And uh, this was called gleaning, of course, the name that was given to it. And we see see it several times in Scripture. Uh, We see even Jesus' disciples in his time, as they would go through a field, they would glean from the field, and that was uh, was there for their provision, for the traveler, for the poor. Uh, In particular, I think we look at the little... The young uh, Moabitess, uh, Ruth, who who is one of those um, uh, men and women in the Hebrew Scriptures that was not Jewish, but she became part of the people of Israel because of her faith and trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and uh, but Ruth was a Moabitess, but but she too started in in the book of uh, Ruth. We see her gleaning in the fields of Boaz, that she was allowed to pick up grain for her. For herself, for her, uh, for her widowed mother-in-law that she lived with, and and that she cared for her. So we see these these concepts uh, fleshed out in real life. Now, the uh, some of these laws that God gave were to tell the people of Israel uh, how they should live, how the people of God should treat other people uh, with love, with respect, uh, with concern, and uh, so we're that's the essence of the. Uh, the laws of God, the law, the Ten Commandments, and the other laws that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and strength, and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. So we see those kind of fleshed out. Um, so we could go on talk a little bit more about the Book of Leviticus, but I, I think one of our phone lines have lit, lit up. So we're going to go and visit with Rich. Let me see if I can make sure I get this right and get all the right buttons pushed. Rich has called in tonight to be a part of the program, and maybe I, I don't know what you might want to talk about, Rich, but uh, maybe something about 
some of the things you've growing and learning, what Christmas is this year, or or maybe just uh, sticking to the text and the Bible and something that you wanted to share with us. Whatever it is, I'm eager to hear, brother. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Well, uh, number one is, to me, Christmas isn't about gifts or anything. It's about the birth of Christ. That's, That's right. That's all it means to me. Ultimately, and, it is. Yeah. That, that ain't all it means. I didn't want to say it like that, but that's what it means to yes, me. Yes, exactly. Uh, I agree. The second thing I called in about that's important to me that I've been throwing around is uh, I'm up in age, and I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about cremation compared to a regular funeral? Oh, there you go. I, that's an interesting uh, interesting thought. I, and I, let me just say first that, uh, that I, I agree with you about it's it's it really is about uh, the the central meaning, of course, is about the Messiah, about the Christ. Uh, what? It, but of course, it broadens from there to. Uh, I don't mind the gift giving too much in the sense that we. I, I know when our family comes together, we celebrate and thank God for His gift to us and, and the, the gift of salvation and the Savior and so on. And then the idea of giving gifts and and uh, being instruments. Of generosity and gifts to others, I, it doesn't bother me too awful much. But I, I wouldn't want us to forget that the core meaning uh, is about God and His gift, you know, to, to us. I agree yeah. with you about that. Now about uh, cremation. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, because yeah, here's a, here's a reason it's puzzling me. Yeah, is because it says in the Bible that uh, the people will rise up from their graves. Yes. Well, uh, if you're cremated, why uh, there's not going to be no grave. <laughs> That's true. I, I guess they do. You do have. I, I recently attended the funeral of uh, a person I loved and cared for. One of my dorm parents in the orphanage where I grew up uh, passed, and I was privileged to go and just to show my respects and, and uh, to him and his family. And he had been cremated, and yet they do put the urn. They do put the remains in a place. Um, I why, don't why know, uh, Sophie. Can it be? Uh a spread over land that you love? That, too. Uh, some people's uh, ashes are spread over the sea, you know, sailors and others. I, I get it. I think, I, And it is puzzling, Rich, because we're told that in the end time, when, when the Redeemer returns, uh, there, there's, uh, uh, we'll be reconstituted our, from our old bodies, there will be will rise and there will be glorified bodies changed so that they respond to the new reality of a spiritual dimension of the world that we'll dwell in. And I, I assume that means that the atoms and molecules that, of our human fleshly earthly body will be in some way reconstituted and brought together to form the new uh, Rich's new body or Soapy's new glorified body. It is puzzling. I have to confess, I haven't figured that one out yet because, you know, um, our bodies are made up of cells and molecules. Like, and, and and I don't know which, are all of the cells that we've ever been part of our body to be reconstituted and brought in as part of our of our uh, human of our you know our glorified body. What if, for example, I don't know how this could work, but what See, if? I'm, I'm Sophie. I'm going by. Uh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yeah, that's uh, that's part of why why it's puzzling me. Yeah, well, you know, cremation. If you think about it, Rich, cremation is just a faster version of decomposition. 
what our bodies do yeah. in the grave. Essentially, there is a dis- decomposition that carbonizes and it turns to d- dust. Uh, and, and so, but whenever we when we are cremated and burned, it, it's just a faster version of that process, uh, quickened by heat. Uh, so, yeah. in, in a sense, I'm not. It, it turns out to be almost the same thing. But like I said, I, I think the promise is that somehow the molecules, atoms, uh, cells of our of that was our earthly body will be reconstituted and re glorified in some way. And uh, but I don't know what that means. Every cell that's ever been a part of our body is going to come back and be a part, or you know, we. Uh, yeah, because it would be awful hard for that to happen if you spread somebody's ashes over a big area. Yeah, uh, on, on land. Well, they could be drawn back together. I don't see that as the hardship. But the other thing would be, what if certain molecules or molecules or cells or something were part of? Multiple bodies. <laughs> Which one of us gets that particular cell? I, I, yeah, I mean, I know yeah, you get down to when you get down to the details of it. It's really hard to comprehend. But I, I, I guess I. Assume, the reason I'm calling is that I wanted to be cremated when I die. Right. Uh, I, I personally, I Rich, I, I'll be honest with you. Me personally, I'm not sure it is. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure th- that it is a particular. A uh, great theological uh, uh, importance, but some people, but some people think it is. Some people think it is. I think, uh, I, I think for Jewish people from that, uh, that I think that that is not uh, an approved or a recommended thing. Even a lot of Christians I know they they don't do that. Maybe we'll have someone call in and give that point of view, and that would be interesting. But I haven't yet become convinced that it's something that is. Is necessarily well. The only reason I called was I'm, I'm more worried about what God thinks about it than people. Yeah, exactly. I I, I can't. I don't see a particular uh, scripture or passage that would say that no, you don't do that. I, I wouldn't see that. Now there could be someone a little that'll inform me and you, Rich. Uh, I haven't yep. given a, a great deal of thought. I have been asked the question over the years, and I have wondered about it a little bit, but it's not one that's really captured my imagination. But uh, it is an important that's thought it. for you, and I understand and respect that. But I don't think I, I don't see in the scripture, at least, anything that really says that you know that God has that is central or, or greatly, greatly important. But maybe well, someone will give us a go. call. I've taken enough of your time. Thank you, Rich. I appreciate you calling. Keep listening because I think maybe a listener, well, I do. Someone I else, do. someone else might call in with a thought about it and might be helpful just, to us both. I just don't call in all the time. That's all. Good to hear from you, my friend. Thanks for calling in. Merry Christmas to you and yours, Rich. And um, oh, thank you. you do the same thing now. That if I don't know, I'm going to tell you. I don't know. I, I haven't uh, come to a deep, deep conviction or uh, about that particular area maybe you could help us if tonight if maybe you studied it deeply and you could give us a thought on it uh i know rich and i both would would welcome and uh your your idea at least and thought and point to the scriptures and we'll we can all consider it together well there uh let me finish up we're talking about leviticus and and uh, the people of israel how god used them and and drew them to himself to use them as an, an earthly function to to keep a witness alive of the true and living God, monotheistic nation, and then also to bring through the people of Israel this Messiah, this Redeemer 
that would come into the world to, for spiritual Israel to draw all men and women from every nation, every tribe, every language group around the world to himself. So uh, that's Leviticus. Holiness is the theme, uh, how the people of God should live. The, uh, what was God's instructions to Israel concerning fortune tellers, astrology, and witchcraft? I, uh, I, I've told some of my story over the years that I, uh, I just mentioned I'm the child of a, an Apache Indian girl on the reservation. She went up to the big city of Albuquerque, gave birth to this beautiful, bouncing genius baby boy, and then she abandoned me at birth, went back to the reservation, and another lady took me in. Uh, found me, saved my life, and uh, kept me for about five years before putting me into a home for homeless and delinquent boys. And that woman was indeed a fortune teller uh, with the crystal ball, the tarot card, the palm reading, and that sort of thing. Uh, this woman, a 50-year-old woman, found me and took me in, and she was a fortune teller. I remember um, the crystal ball. I remember growing up uh, in my early years uh, around her. Uh, her name was Princess Babe Hawk. And uh, she took care of me. And, but uh, now the scriptures, book of Leviticus, has something to say about fortune tellers and astrology, witchcraft, and that sort of thing. And uh, in general, it's not in favor. Uh, we're not to practice the occult or consult with those who do practice uh, the occult, uh, occult practices. Uh, it talks about child sacrifice. That was a part of the nations around Israel. The Ammonites, you know, the Assyri- the Syrian nation to the north, the Babylonians, and all of those places, the Egyptians, there was uh, there was uh, human sacrifice, and this was a a terrible sin. So we see these things in the Book of Leviticus. We've talked about them at length in weeks past uh, when Jacob was here to talk with us and help us with with those as well. Let's jump forward then now to the years. Uh, what we see in the Hebrew Scriptures is this this Redeemer, this Savior, this this uh, deliverer is going to be coming to the world. God's are going to send him. Uh, we get from the, all the different passages put together. We get some a picture of of this one, uh, what he would be like, where he'd be born. There's certain predictions, and his his nature that he would indeed be divine, but he would take on flesh, and and that he would carry out this work of redemption. What what that means is we're told, for example, that he would be. <clears throat> the Lamb of God. <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> that he would be, uh, you see the animal sacrifices in the Hebrew Scriptures uh, were a picture of that redemptive plan, the substitutionary atonement that God was going to bring about through the, the Messiah, the Redeemer. And it was pictured for us through the animals, the lambs and goats and bulls and oxen that were sacrificed, uh, that were given, donated, given, charitable giving, and they were used to not only meet the physical needs of the Levitical tribe, so they would have food and sustenance, but they were uh, spiritually, they were a way that uh, repentant, truly repentant, uh, God-seeking men and women could, could uh, dramatize, could express their faith in God's forgiveness, that God would atone and cover their sins. Uh, and ultimately, they were kind of dramatized predictions of the Messiah, the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist called Jesus of Nazareth. Here, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all of those sacrifices of the Hebrew Scriptures were looking forward to the work of the Messiah who would atone for sins uh, definitively, not, not symbolically or uh, in a dramatized way, but the, the, be the definitive 
Lamb of God through his perfect life. He was he was blameless. He was at, without blemish or spot. Remember all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They had to be lambs and goats and without blemish, without spot, no broken legs. They couldn't be uh, wounded or bleeding. They had to be perfect uh, to come. Picturing the idea that that our Redeemer, our Savior, would have to be one who would live out a perfect life of faith and trust and obedience to the to God, a sinless human being who when he who knew no sin then would become sin for us. And that was pictured in the, in the, uh, the without blemish or spot, the perfect uh, perfection and innocence of the Lamb of God, the true atonement Lamb. So now we look, come to Matthew, and uh, Matthew is a book of the New Testament that, that talks about uh, the Messiah. There are four such books, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Now, all of the rest of the New Testament talks about Jesus, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in particular are written to be records. They are eyewitness accounts of what he was like, what he said, what he, his words, his teaching, his actions, and so on. And so we have uh, four of these. One is Matthew. His uh, Hebrew name was Levi. Uh, I assume that means he was a Levite, I'm guessing, but I'm not sure. He was a tax collector, and he was one who compromised, who who went to work for the Roman government collecting taxes for them. And so uh, he was not a beloved uh, human being. He was one that was looked down upon uh, and, and to some degree probably ostracized by his uh, Jewish uh, other Jewish people because he had collaborated. He, to some degree, was collaborating with the uh, Romans who were holding, uh, they had almost the entire world of that, the civilized world, under their their control and their power, their mighty armies and military force, and they had the they had the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, under their thumb in these times. And uh, one of the things that Jacob has taught me over the years that you never, when you read the Gospels, the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read about the life and the ministry of Jesus. One of the things that we often underestimate as as uh, as Gentile believers from different culture, we don't know of that Hebrew background and history and so on, is that we often underestimate underestimate the degree of moral uh, and spiritual compromise that was present in the land of Israel. It was they there was a lot of corruption. Uh, they both. Uh, in the, in the society as a whole, in the politics of the land, there were people who sold out and would try, you know, out for money. And and of course, the Romans were selling the the priesthood. It wasn't just about the Levites; uh, they sold the priesthood. Uh, Nicodemus, this uh, one who comes to Jesus by night, we think of that he is a religious leader and so on. But evidently, by his name, at least he's Greek, uh, probably not uh, Hebrew in that sense. But we, we uh, it could have been a convert to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of course. But what I'm trying to impress upon you is that there was a great level of compromise uh, in Israel, the, whether it's in the society and the morality of the people, in the in the spiritual leadership, the the priesthood was being bought and sold. The Romans, uh, if you paid enough money, you could become a priest. You could become a member of the Sanhedrin, the governing uh, council of over Israel. Uh, and there was even in the religious realm, 
there was compromise. That's, uh, Jacob has helped us to see. That's why Jesus went to his uh, second cousin, John the Baptist, to be baptized. Uh, because he said, let it be all, all righteousness be fulfilled. Because the, if a man was to begin a ministry and dedicate himself to a ministry, that was he was told to do in the, in, the, in the law of God, was to go to the Levites and present himself for ceremonial cleansing as they launched their ministry. So Jesus did that, and he couldn't go to the Levites in the temple. It was corrupted. They were, uh, the priesthood had been compromised. So he went to his second cousin, John the Baptist, who indeed was a Levite, by Zechariah's father, Elizabeth, his uh, mother. So uh, we see this. That's one of the things that we need to be aware of. Uh, I know that Jacob has helped me to see it, is that the historical context for the life and times of Jesus, uh, it was a a very confusing, chaotic uh, time. There was a lot of corruption all around. So Jesus had to, to, to weather that and walk through that with wisdom, um, and, and present his claims, his claim to be the Messiah. And, and speaking of Jacob, he is with us. Uh, calling in from somewhere out in left field. Uh, he's part of our program here. Jacob, good to hear from you. Well, thank you. I just called to wish all our Jewish listeners happy Hanukkah, and of course, uh, this will be my last opportunity to wish Merry Christmas to all the Christian listeners. Thank you, my brother. Good to hear from you. What are you in the the great state of uh, the arid zone out there? Yes, it is. Okay, Arizona. We're glad to hear from you, my friend. What's going on? Do you want to add something to our conversation? I guess you've been listening a little no, bit there. I, I, no, I actually haven't been listening at all. I just noticed the time, and uh, oh, we right. just finished. We just finished doing Hanukkah, and I was going to call and slip in to say Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and all that stuff. Yeah. We're glad to hear from you, my friend. Thank you for calling. Say hi to Tavin and to all your family there. We we think of you guys often. Hope you have a wonderful season here. All righty, and you all have a great holiday too. Thank you, Jacob. Good to hear from all you. Right, thanks. Bye bye. There, well, that's great. No more we say his name, and there he is. Uh, you can give a call just like uh, Rich did, just like any of our other calls, like Jacob has done, 210-340-9585. And we're kind of talking about all things messianic tonight, all things our uh, Christology. We're getting our understanding together of uh, God becoming a man, stepping into time and space to carry out a work of redemption uh, for us. So we're trying to analyze it, think about it, uh, share some thoughts and, and uh, things that I, I, I feel like I've learned over the years of walking with the Lord and come to understand. Uh, I, I think there's a time when we move uh, beyond the uh, understanding of a child. And, and you know, the, the gospel message is so simple in its essence, in its core, that even a child can't understand that God loves us. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a problem of sin and selfishness, but God has paid the penalty of our sin so that we could be forgiven and brought into the family of God. That's the the simplicity of the gospel message is something. I was an eight year old child when I placed my faith in Christ, and I asked Him to come into my life and trusted Him by His promise. He said, "If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, He said, I will come in." So I trusted His promise to begin uh, to receive by faith the forgiveness and the cleansing that he afforded by his uh, messianic work on our behalf, and then um, became a part of the people of God. And, of course, my understanding at that time was not particularly America, profound. It's snoring season. I was eight years old, but we grow in our understanding as well. So uh, we'll, 
will um, take your phone call tonight. And, and what was the process of your growth as you've come to know the Lord? Maybe it was just simple like mine as an eight-year-old boy, forgiven and cleansed, and thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross in my place. But then now as we become adults, uh, we, we have to think a, a more mature understanding of, of the of the true and living God, who He is, what He accomplished, and how He accomplished the redemptive plan, how He carried it out in history. You can give me a call, 210-340-9585. There's our music again. Another segment has gone under the belt. So give us a call if you'd like. We have one more segment when we come back in just a moment. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Mary, did you know that your baby boy one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby Save our sons and daughters Did you know That your baby boy Has come to make you new This child that you delivered Will soon deliver you Mary, did you know You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar We'll give sight to a blind man Mary, did you know that your baby boy calm a storm with his hand? Did you know, did you know, your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. What a beautiful song. I Thank you, John. I love that. Too. I'm going to learn that song. I, I, goodness, that's so touching. Mary, did you know? what? Of course, she did know. She had been told. An angel had told her. We, we see that in the Gospels. Uh, Gabriel had been dispatched to bring the message to her, uh, Joseph, to her, um, Mary. They did know, in fact, that you will be the one that bears that child. Uh, my understanding through the... Through the centuries, uh, Jewish maidens, young Jewish girls would wonder, would I, could I be that one? Could I be the one to bring the Messiah, the Redeemer? Uh, uh, just given that picture, uh, very young, about uh, the men and women of Israel as they look forward to this Redeemer, this Savior. Wow, beautiful song. Well, let's get back into Matthew. We're talking about this one named Levi was his name, or Matthew. He... Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, it starts by giving us the lineage, the genealogical lineage of Jesus. It traced back to uh, historical, two historical figures that were very important to the Jewish people and necessary for everyone. Anyone who would claim to be the Messiah would trace their lineage back from Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, and then, of course, through the great King David, the second king of Israel after Saul. 
And so he would be of David's lineage, coming from the the city of David, which was Bethlehem. Remember, David uh, was anointed king. He was a shepherd boy uh, for his family, uh, son of Jesse, there in in, uh, Bethlehem, uh, which means, uh, let me see, what is it? A city of bread, uh, I believe, house of bread. And so, uh, which I guess has to do with its crops, right? With wheat and oats and the uh, that they raised that they, the, to make the bread that fed the nation. So uh, we see that here in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we see these women. I mentioned uh, these women that are involved in the genealogy of Jesus. There's Tamar, there's Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary. Uh, Rahab and Ruth, neither one were were Jewish. Uh, so these, but they were all. Uh, believers and followers after the true and living God in their different ways, and we see them as part of the genealogy uh, of the Messiah. And, uh, and But as I said, in a dream, an angel came, Gabriel, and told Joseph that Mary's child, whom, whom he should name Jesus, Yeshua, which means Savior, or Redeemer, or Salvation, that this Savior, that he would fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 7, by being called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. So uh, here, all of these, all these prophecies and predictions, astrologers were part of. Remember the, these uh, royal, uh, the magi, the magi that came from the eastern lands, uh, from over in the Babylon region, and so on. They came across. They knew about the star. Uh, remember, as a, as a legacy and a heritage of, of the ministry of Daniel, over in that part of the world in Babylon and so on. Uh, Daniel was the one that God used, a, a great school of, of, uh, of teachers and uh, men and women who looked into the things of God. And uh, Daniel was the one that, that helped to point them in the idea of a star that would, that would guide them to, uh, to the king. Uh, now, of course, if Jacob were here, he could tell us there were others, too, that were born under a star, other leaders. But uh, this was the, the Magi came from the east, uh, traveling, you know, we three kings of Orient are. Remember that song we heard earlier? Uh, that's about these, uh, these Magi that came following the star because it predicted the birth of a king. And uh, it settled over, uh, over Bethlehem, o- over that part of the world. And uh, I used to have a friend that did a lot of, uh, he researched a lot of these things, the computer graphics and the computer uh, reenactments of the movements of the stars and he had uh he had done some research that they that it did in fact uh, set computer programs to tracing the movement of stars and indeed it does it did show a great star over israel over bethlehem in that particular time of history so it's a remarkable thing uh, you could maybe research it yourself and so on but i i just remember that my good friend's name was Jerry, and he uh, he oh he he made a great talk about that and shared some of his his input, the things he saw that he had learned from those uh, computer models that retrace the, the the seasons and the movements of the stars. Uh, let's let's go further further. We're talking about the book of Matthew now. We're down to chapter five. Some of the things that took place. Uh, um, 
Matthew, here's an example of a, a prediction that we serve now from the over 300 prophecies that are that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, these aren't prophecies that we kind of make up. You know, I, I've been for the last six years making up these prophecies. These were th- prophecies that were either existed before that were considered pro- messianic prophecies by the Jewish people themselves, many of them, but also others that we find in the New Testament that Jesus himself or uh, his followers, Peter, James, John, the, the uh, uh, Saul of Tarsus, who became the great uh, Paul, uh, these other Jewish men and women who knew the scriptures pointed to us and said, you know, see, that was a fulfillment of a prophecy, a prediction. Uh, and in Hosea chapter 11, uh, God called Israel out of Egypt and said it was also a prediction of God calling the Messiah out of Egypt. And, uh, and the question came, well, how and why was Jesus as a child taken to Egypt? And we remember in chapter 2 of Matthew that that uh, Joseph and Mary were told to take he, Joseph was told to take his family down into Egypt to escape uh, a, a slaughter that Herod remember in his attempt to kill the Messiah he had been told that there was a king that was born and Herod was he he in fact uh, went about the killing all the infants two years old and younger and uh, to escape that slaughter and that tyranny. Uh, Joseph was warned by an angel and instructed to take his family down into Egypt. But then, of course, they came. They returned from Egypt, uh, and they settled and, and lived uh, their lives in Nazareth, which was a, a little bit of a you – know, there was a saying in, in the Galilee of that era that nothing good can come from Nazareth. We see it at least one time, I know, in the New Testament. Uh, Nazareth was really not a big town. It was not a, the place where you'd say a great king came from there. Uh, maybe like little Dumas, Texas, you know, where I was, uh, where I was said to be born. I wasn't actually born there, but on my birth certificate. The doctor who signed my birth certificate signed it uh, two or three months after I was born and put that I was born in Dumas, Texas, because that's where he had his practice. So uh, <laughs> maybe Jesus came back and lived in a little podunk town. I love little Dumas. It's a great little old town. But, you know, that uh, Nazareth was not considered a great, great town or that place, a great king coming from it. But he came born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. Um, then something else happened in the life of Jesus. We see in chapter 3, the Old Testament prophet uh, predicted, the book of Isaiah, he predicted centuries earlier now that a messenger would come before the Messiah, there would come one to prepare the way for him and his ministry. And we see in the book of Matthew and the Gospels that this uh, is speaking of uh, if we if we see the correlation and we have eyes to see and faith to see it, John the Baptist became this messenger who would prepare the way, lift high the valleys, lay low the mountains, prepare the path. And, and so John the Baptist indeed did, uh, Jesus' second cousin, he did begin a ministry calling people to repent. As I said, there was a great vacuum, a spiritual vacuum in, in Israel of the first century. There was a lot of compromise. There was corruption. They were under the thumb, uh, suffering under the taxation and the heavy burden and, and the control of Rome. And so there was a longing for delivery. Uh, the cry of the people went up to God to deliver them from that. And so um, we see that that God sent John the Baptist, a very unusual individual. He was definitely a Levite, 
but he came and started carrying out a truly spiritual ministry, calling the people to repent and and to show by repentance and 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 to uh, come back to God. And he he began to develop a, a very large ministry. Great crowds were following John the Baptist, and then. Uh, essentially, very suddenly, when Jesus of Nazareth came to him and, and said uh, to be baptized, to inaugurate his ministry, to begin his work, John the Baptist said, but I shouldn't, you should be baptizing me. I shouldn't have to baptize you. And, and Jesus said, well, but so that all righteousness be fulfilled. And referring to the fact that he was, he was, a, he was um, launching his public ministry in the correct way, he went to a Levite, uh, to uh, the priest of Israel to to announce and to begin his public ministry with his his ceremonial washing and pre- preparation for his ministry and John the Baptist now some people don't realize that John was given a heads up uh we're told this in the gospel of John John was told by God beforehand that when you are baptizing people uh when you see the the spirit of God descend on one of your uh baptizees one of the people you baptize, when you see the Spirit of God descend upon him in the form of a dove, you'll know that that is the Messiah. And and uh, that happened when John baptized Jesus. Uh, he knew and saw that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And he began to point his ministry toward, toward Jesus. It would be like somebody with a, a Billy Graham with a huge following and a great ministry Voluntarily turning his ministry over to okay, everybody. I want you now. I want you to start listening to, and I want you to follow Soapy Dollar. He's going to be your leader now. Someone in our day turning their ministry over to another person, and it's so unselfishly and and not usually thought of as being done. But John gladly, willingly pointed even his own disciples to tell them follow him, follow after Jesus. And uh, so that's where Jesus' ministry was launched with the support of and the full um, uh, collaboration with his with John the Baptist, and um, and, and John knew him and recognized him. He was the one who would come. Uh, he was not worthy to tie his shoes, but he would be the one who would baptize others with the Holy Spirit and with fire, with judgment. So on. Uh, at his baptism is a time when all three persons of the Godhead manifest their presence. Remember, God the Father spoke from the cloud, This is my Son, uh, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Uh, the Holy Spirit descended upon the Son of God, the Messiah incarnate, God incarnate, on, this, on Jesus of Nazareth. So you had the Father, the Son, and the Spirit manifesting their presence at that same moment in that same place uh, by the River Jordan. Uh, so th- that's an unusual moment that we can picture in Noah as well. After his baptism, we have something happens in in, in Matthew chapter four that really is quite interesting and quite important. If you want to know a little bit about what was the purpose, what was the role of the Messiah, what was Jesus supposed to do in order to earn our redemption and our salvation. And we see this, it says that after his baptism, that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. And actually the word, the verb is actually more violent than led. It's, it, the word is more the idea of driven by the Holy Spirit out into the desert wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and, and sought after God and a meeting with God. Jesus, Jesus often went during his life to spend extended periods praying and, and, and uh, 
worshiping God and being with the Father. And uh, what happened is that he was he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now I don't I don't have time to get into a deep, deep, but totally a detailed discussion of this. You'll have to look up some of this, and you'll have to decide if you think Soapy Dollar's on the right track here uh, about these temptations. What was the nature? of the temptations of Jesus. What was Satan trying to get him to do? Now, in our the regular kind of Sunday school level understanding of that, people might ask the question, well, Jesus was driven into the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan. And the question that a teacher, a Sunday school teacher might ask, for example, would be, could Jesus have sinned? And everybody would scratch their head and look around and try to think and guess, and and someone would say, well, well, yes, he could sin. Sure, it, it was a temptation. And then the answer would be, well, then he couldn't be God because God can't sin. And then the, we'd scratch our heads and go, hmm, you got a point there. Huh? That might make sense. And then we'd say, well, okay, he, he couldn't have sinned. Uh, the, the, he could not have given in to the temptation. And then we say, well, in that case, it wasn't a temptation. If there was no way he could respond to it, then it wasn't a real temptation, uh, or just in the mind of Satan, perhaps. But the point is that uh, it seems that it was a real temptation. There was a real testing going on. But what was it all about? What was Satan trying to get Jesus to do? Now, if you want to think about the temptations of Jesus, you have to make some decisions up front. Uh, For one, let's just say this – if Jesus was indeed the eternal Son of God incarnate, who humbled himself and took on flesh and became a man, then then if he was God, he was God. There's if he was God, there's nothing we can do about it. He can't stop being God, and Satan couldn't make him not God. So that that was not at risk. Uh, if you follow my logic, and I, if you agree with that. Uh, he could not become not God. But so what What Satan was tempting, what was Satan trying to tempt Jesus? It has to do with what is the role of the Messiah. What was the Messiah supposed to do? What was his job, his task, to be able to be successful? Well, Jesus came. He didn't come to planet Earth. Uh, the Son of God did not become incarnate. He did not become a little fertilized egg on the wall of Mary's womb and go to the months of gestation and being born and so on in order to prove he was God. That that was Jesus didn't come to earth to prove he was God. He didn't come to earth to start another religion. Uh, he came to earth to carry out the redemptive work that had been announced and planned from Genesis all through the Hebrew Scriptures uh, through uh, the scriptures that we see, he came to earth to his job, his task was to be uh, to live a perfect life of faith and trust and obedience and submission to the Father as a man, as a human being, uh, to live out that perfect life. And then he who knew no sin could be our representative. He could be our mediator. He could be that lamb without blemish and spot that in his death, his sacrifice then, he would take our punishment upon himself and therefore liberate and enable us to be reconciled to God. Our sins atoned, covered, forgiven, and that we could be made right and have a confident, secure relationship with the true and living God. That was the job Jesus had. So, uh, what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do 
uh, and, and you can look these out. You'll have to study these for yourself. Uh, each temptation, turning the stone into bread or jumping off of the temple of the corner of the temple, uh, a 40 to 50 foot leap down into the court of the Gentiles where it would be the miraculous. They would see that he wouldn't be hurt. And so God, it was kind of the, the, uh, the temptation of the spectacular. You know, here Jesus is trying to present himself as the Messiah, as the Savior, as a Redeemer. And so Satan is suggesting ways that he could do that painlessly, that you don't have to go through this pain and faith and sacrifice and dying. Uh, if you just do these things uh, and act, which you, ha- you can do, then, then, then I, you, you, can, uh, you can accomplish the role of the Messiah. Uh, in other words, if, if you're a God, if you're truly the Messiah, the God, turn the stone into bread. Could Jesus have turned the stone into bread? Of course he could. He made, he created that stone. He had every right and he had the power to do it. But if he had done so, he would have been acting of his own initiative and prerogative and authority and as God uh, of his own initiative and not in submission to, as a man, submitting to and obeying, depending entirely upon God the Father and, and the Spirit of God working in him, enabling him and guiding him. In other words, he would, he would, the temptations were Satan trying to get Jesus to act on his own accord, of his own benefit, independently, uh, which he could do. If he's God, he can do that. He has every right to do that. But he would have been eliminated from being our mediator because he would not have walked out by faith. He had to be the perfect faith, trust, obedience, submission to God. He couldn't act of his own prerogative, his own initiative, his own power and authority as God. Uh, he he only did what, the, what God showed him to do. You look at John chapter 5, verse, I think it's verse uh, 11. John 5, is it verse 11? John 5, about 31 in that area, 28 to 31. Jesus himself said, I, I don't do anything of my own self, of my own initiative, my own will, my own prerogative as God. I only do what I, what I hear from the Father, what the Father shows me to do. So Jesus was to walk out a perfect life of faith and trust and obedience, not to act of his own initiative and prerogative. Uh, and that's what the... That is the secret of the temptations of Jesus. In each case, Jesus, Satan was trying to tempt Jesus with a shortcut to accomplish and to accomplish the, the, his messiahship. Uh, one, the, turning the, the stone into bread, uh, demonstrating it that way. Otherwise, jumping off the temple. This was a public building; people would see him, and here he was trying to present himself as the Messiah to Israel. And jumping off the building, they would see and they would know and they would follow him. Or uh, even this, the, the secret temptation. He's out with Satan himself alone. And Satan says, if you just do this meaningless little thing, bow down and worship me. It doesn't mean anything. Of course, you're God. You're God. It doesn't change anything. But if you would do that, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Well, all the kingdoms of the world had already been promised to the Messiah. I would make the, the nations of the world your footstool that God had promised to the Messiah. But only by faith and trust. So the idea was to trust in God, in God's method, in God's way of dealing and of giving to the Messiah that promise, or to take this shortcut to faith uh, and submission. And that that is, I think, the secret of the temptations. Now, uh, i got to jump quickly ahead. Um, oh, there's so many w- wonderful things in the book of Matthew where Jesus said that one person had the greatest faith he had ever seen in all of Israel. Who was that? It was a Roman military officer. Can you believe that? 
uh, of the centurion. I wonder if that might have been Cornelius that Peter later meets uh, in the book of Acts. I don't know. I've always kind of wondered about that. Um, well, finally, this is the gospel according to Matthew now. This Levite, this um, Jewish man who was a tax collector, he began to follow Jesus of Nazareth. And he begins a, he gives a, 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 an, an eyewitness account of who Jesus was, how he lived, wh- how he worked, how he spoke, how he taught. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5 through 8, we see what is called the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. And this was, as Jacob has pointed out to us a number of times, this was Jesus fulfilling the role of the king of Israel. He was to teach the Torah. He was to teach God's laws to the people. And so we see Jesus there. What we call the Sermon on the Mount was him as well (coughs) obeying the laws of God for the king of Israel, for the true king, to teach the Torah, God's laws to the people. And we see Jesus doing that in the Sermon on the Mount, fulfilling it was kind of a, a veiled messianic claim that I am the Messiah. Here I'm doing what the Messiah, what the King of Israel was ordered to do. Well, we're going to continue through the, the Gospel of Matthew this coming week. Uh, uh, Jacob will be back with us, and we'll continue through this exciting first firsthand account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth and how he came to be that Redeemer, that Savior, that Messiah and how he suffered and died, humbled himself to death, even death on the cross, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Folks, glad to have you along with us tonight on The Bible Live. Thanks for our callers. And as Jacob always said, try to be the kind of person that you would like to have for a father. God bless you. Merry Christmas, everyone. God bless you. God bless us all, one and all. The Bible Live is dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 930 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The The Bible Bible Live Live Quiz Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and the Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world.